A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Zoe. And I'm Ben. And this is the New Statesman's twice-weekly politics podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the latest Brexit-related snarl-up at Dover. Then you ask us about Labour's new target voters. As seems to be customary now when the holiday season begins in the UK, we're seeing long delays for people setting off on their Easter holidays at Dover. Thousands of passengers over the weekend were stranded in lengthy queues for up to 24 hours. Suella Bravman, the Home Secretary, denied that this was related to Brexit and blamed a combination of other factors, including our old friend, the bad weather, which has become a sort of quite a familiar excuse, I think, when it comes to these sort of system breakdowns that we're seeing in this country. The government blamed the weather in Spain and Morocco for the recent supermarket salad shortages earlier this year, I think our listeners may remember. Number 10 has actually since admitted that new processes brought in since Brexit have contributed to several days of travel chaos. So what is actually going on? What are those new processes? The former Tory cabinet minister, David Gork, who is now one of our columnists and has appeared on this podcast before, he's written a great piece for the New Statesman this week entitled Brexit is to blame for Dover delays, which all our listeners should go and read. But he basically explains what's going on, why the queues are building up. And he says it's mainly down to passport procedures. So before we left the EU... French officials at Dover just had to check we had a passport, whereas now they have to ensure we haven't spent more than 90 out of 180 days in the EU, and then they have to stamp the passport. Now, obviously, that doesn't take very long in itself, but if every single person crossing that border has to do it, then it builds up into these long queues. Zoe, what are the politics of this? Is there a sort of consensus between the government and Labour now that this does partially have something to do with Brexit-related bureaucracy? Obviously, as you say, we heard that the Home Secretary blamed the bad weather and the number of coaches that turned up and people will point out oh, there's always been queues at Dover during school holidays. And I think it's interesting because neither really the Conservatives or Labour really want to bring up the B word <laughs> because neither of them want to talk about the problems that are going wrong. And it's all to do with winning back this kind of leave vote. I think what's interesting is when Labour were talking about the queues, they were talking about how these issues could have been dealt with had the government foreseen what would have happened, rather than blaming Brexit itself. 
I think there is a, an admission on both sides that, you know, from that, there are a number of things that have been made worse because of Brexit. So I know that David Frost, the Conservative kind of, he was the chief ne- negotiator and now he's a, very much a Conservative Brexiteer, suggested that the UK should negotiate with the EU for better data sharing and scrapping of visit limits. It's quite interesting how both sides, even though that they will talk about the kind of things that have happened as a result of Brexit, still want to frame it as it's not directly an impact of Brexit. Brexit, Brexit's still a, a thing we're pushing ahead with. So we're still seeing a bit of dancing around the topic, I think. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I think when Rishi Sunak signed the Windsor framework, we did an episode on this podcast about how tricky it might be for Labour to continue using that slogan, make Brexit work. Because when you have pictures of Sunak signing a deal, and of course, as we saw after that, Tory MPs on the whole voting it through in Parliament, it looks like Brexit is working better than it was, at least on that kind of political level. But actually, surely the slogan can be resurrected or applied to things like this. Of course, it's not the only reason that these delays are happening. And I think we all of us will remember that there are queues at Dover over the holidays and have been in the past. With the, For example, with the salad shortages in the supermarkets, remember the HGV driver shortage, which was a, a really big story. The lack of airport staff, for example, when people are trying to get out on their summer holidays. There are Brexit elements to all of these hindrances to day-to-day life. It does seem like a missed opportunity if Labour still feels fearful about naming that problem. It's, it's understandable politically why they are hesitant about that. And of course, on the government's part, they don't want to start saying that there's no benefits to Brexit. But perhaps it is a bit of a missed opportunity at this point. I think increasingly we're seeing, and I'm sure Ben will get onto this, that public opinion about mm. Brexit is slightly reversing. And I think we've obviously experienced over the last year a lot of economic turmoil, dropping living standards, cost of living rise. And I think people always want a reason as to why these things are happening, something to direct their anger at. And I think actually what we're seeing is a lot of this is being directed at Brexit and this feeling of why are we doing what seems to be so badly compared to other countries in the European Union? And when we talk about food shortages, and when we talk about delays crossing the border, all of these things seem to be able to be linked to one thing, which is Brexit. So I think Labour will probably see them increasingly talking about how should we make Brexit work and how can we work closer with the EU. As we said before, it's a really difficult kind of line to tread because they don't want to be put in a position where the Conservatives can easily turn around and say, here they go again, they really want to join the EU, they're not listening to the will of the people, they want to look back, they don't want to look forward. So I think there's definitely a way that Labour can frame some of these difficulties and find you know, ways to get around them. I mean, the other thing which we've talked about quite a lot now on the podcast is once Labour talk about a really good idea that they've had, a really good kind of policy idea, often can get stolen by the Conservatives, especially as we're ramping up to election time. So I think they need to find a way of talking about Brexit in these kind of challenging terms, but also keeping their cards quite close to their chest when it comes to actual kind of policy solutions. Yeah, that's the thing. And I suppose they, they've they got sort of two incentives there to be a bit careful about talking about this stuff. First of all, as you very well laid out, they don't want to be accused of potentially reneging on Brexit if they get into government, first of all. But second of all, and I think this is something that's slightly un- undercovered at the moment, is there is, I've picked up hope on the EU side that they will strike a much closer relationship with the EU if they get into government, you know, even hope that there could be some kind of reversal of Brexit or rejoining of the single market. And I don't think that on the Labour side, they want to get the EU's hopes up about 
that potential scenario because it doesn't look likely that's a path that they would follow. So I think that's another side to it. That's the other audience that they're potentially speaking to. Ben, what is, Zoe mentioned public opinion shifting on Brexit. What does it look like at the moment? How does the British public feel about Brexit? And are we seeing any benefits to it? What does public opinion feel about Brexit right now? We are seven years on from the referendum when 52% voted to leave and 48% didn't. And what we've seen is the type of people who voted in that referendum have since either stopped voting or we were having new people join altogether. So always bear this thing in mind. In 2017 and 2019, more people that voted remain turned out at the ballot box than those people that voted leave. So a lot of people voting in the referendum was like a one, one election one election wonder. Yeah, one election wonder. It was the only time they really wanted to come out and since then they've stayed home. But that, in my view, makes it more remarkable that Boris Johnson won such a damning majority in 2019. Now, in terms of how many Britons, voting Britons, all Britons, how many people think Brexit was a right decision, that has steadily declined by quite a large amount. But you were looking in about 2017, half the country said it was the right decision, half the country said it was the wrong decision. Now according to YouGov, who run a, run a lovely tracker. The 32% say it was the right decision. 56% say it was the wrong decision. That's quite a shift. But what you need to know is a lot of that, bluntly, is down to leavers, leave voters, losing faith with the whole thing, or rather not being bothered about it anymore. Already a great proportion of them are not voting in elections. Already a great proportion of them, great proportion of them as a consequence of Boris Johnson, aren't that interested in politics anymore. They were enamoured with him. Liz Trust turned them off. Rishi Sunak has failed to bring them back. They are just not that as involved with the system anymore. In terms of do you want to rejoin the EU, most Britons now indeed say yes. But I always put a very large asterisk over that, is that you are asking voters now, the voters of the here and now. And the people who are going to turn out at the next election, it's probably going to be a lower turnout than the last election because you have a Tory base that is still despite Sunak's attempts with rallying them with boats and all that, you have a Tory base that is still very apathetic. So the composition, the players on the pitch, so to speak, of who Britain is, the voters are right now, is perhaps not representative of what it would be if there was a rejoin campaign. Because you know what would happen when we have a referendum on rejoining the EU. You know how voters will be rallied, your vote is being betrayed, you've got to come out again, you've got to stand up for Britain. You know what's going to happen. And under... So when I see rejoin leading by 10 or 15 or 20 points, I always like, no, I think you've got to wait until a campaign. You don't know who's going to be motivated out to vote when that referendum comes. If That's so interesting. So you're saying those people who are saying yes to rejoin in in those surveys are the people who would turn out to vote. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yes, okay. this is the thing. When we look at polls, when we look at voting intentions, Labour lead of 20 points, Labour lead of whatever, that those are polls of people who are certain right. to vote. okay, I see. Okay? And so I think pollsters sometimes struggle to show the people who have stopped voting or have left the scene altogether after years after whatever, and they always struggle to sample non-voters, people who didn't vote before but now want to vote again. It's always a bit of a, it's always a bit difficult with that. So always remember this. When you're looking at polls, you're looking at certain voters, very certain voters, and let's be honest, the only people who want to turn out in a rejoin referendum right now are, by and large, rejoin mm. voters. Okay, that's really interesting. And in general, I'd be interested in both you and Zoe's perspective on this. 
What impact do images of these long queues of coaches and cars at Dover, vox pops of Britons trying to get on holiday and being very disappointed and frustrated, these things often make the top of the news because they are quite relatable, very human stories. What impact does it have on public opinion? Because as far as I can tell when I speak to people, but also those running focus groups at the moment, there is a real feeling among the public that the country is a bit of a shambles and you hear the phrase nothing works anymore. I feel like I've said that phrase before. Does this resonate with the public at all, these kind of things, or do they does a slow drip of them build up into a bigger sort of picture of the country just not being as good as it was, which is definitely something that Labour are trying to evoke from its rhetoric at the moment. Are you better off than you were 13 years ago? Does, you know, does this work better than it did 13 years ago? Ben, would the voters notice an individual story like this or is it more of part of a bigger picture? It's hard to quantify, hard to to necessarily see. It it is, as you say, forms part of a bigger picture. I call it Mm -hmm. mood music. There's the boats at Dover, excessive queues, NHS falling apart, takes ages to see a doctor. All these things aid a general narrative that allows political parties to put out simple messaging, which is if you say Britain's not working, then damn, you're going to get a decent vote at the next election, aren't you? That's what the Conservative Party did in 1979. And it worked wonders there. Though Mrs. Thatcher was less popular than Mr. Callaghan, her messaging of Britain's not working it's, and all that sort of stuff worked wonders because people found mm. it very resonant. I don't know if people are keeping an eye on the queues at Dover, but they would be like, we can't even trade. We can't even get off our island anymore. <laughs> it's It does aid the mood music and the mood music is already of a country that is very much broken. Yeah, I think I agree with Ben. I think it's, it is hard to quantify, but I think it does very much fit with this picture we've been hearing for a number of months now that nothing works. The trains don't mm. work. Yeah, as Ben said, you can't get a doctor's appointment. The real kind of worry for the Conservatives is that obviously you don't want to mess with Brits trying to take their holidays because holidays are very important, I think, to us. And people use this opportunity to take their kids away. I was in, you know, Parliament yesterday. It was empty because everyone's gone on holiday. So I think there is a real kind of significance of when you stick people in a car on the motorway for eight hours when they're going to miss their ferry. That really annoys people. And as Ben said, people want to get off the island and it's very expensive to take holidays in the UK now as well so I guess it very much contributes to that feeling of oh what we can't even take a break now. I do think there is a thing though which is that even though we see these pictures these pictures of long delays on the motorway and backed up lorries coach coaches the people who think this is all just making a big fuss and that it's more kind of fear-mongering and more people just trying to make a big fuss over nothing they're going to still continue to think that so they're still going to be like oh, of course, people are going to say this because they never wanted Brexit to work and there were always queues beforehand. So I don't think the pictures necessarily are going to change the mind of people who were already thinking that there was a lot of fuss over nothing. But I do think it's not great optics for the Conservatives. A lot of their voter base are going to try and get away with their kids at this time of year. And it's just another set of awkward questions that they'll have to answer about why this particular process is. The irony is, as Brits, if we came back from a holiday, then we would regale our friends and family with exactly the story of waiting eight hours in a queue, wouldn't we? That would be our first anecdote. We love queuing. They're just giving us what we want. After the break, we'll answer your question about who on earth is Stevenage Woman. And if you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Hi, it's Anoush here. 
This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. You can subscribe for just a pound a week. That's 12 weeks for £12 if you go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. We'll be right back. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask, you ask Us. Our question today is. Who is Stevenage Woman? I love the construction of this question. It's like one of those SEO articles. Who is her husband? What is her net worth? (laughs) Zoe, please tell us who she is. Bring her to life. The Stevenage Woman is a concept that's been spoken about earlier this week. So Labour Together is this think tank that was made up of Labour front benches, policy experts and strategists. And they published a report on Sunday that basically was charting Labour's path towards electoral success. And the report highlighted these two key voters that they think are going to be integral to Labour's path to victory at the next general election. So that was the Workington man, which we've heard about before. It's the kind of socially conservative, proud patriot, red wall voter. And then the Stevenage woman, which is this kind of new concept of this other kind of key voter. And she's this young, hardworking, but struggling to get by woman. She feels that national politics makes little difference to her life and her town. And she's more traditionally conservative sided, but she's now politically disengaged. And basically, they've said that these are the two voters that Labour needs to work towards to, in order to win the next election. Mm, that's so interesting. And why Stevenage, Ben? What is it about that constituency that makes it so necessary for Labour's triumph? Oh, because it's, it's a marginal. It's needed to win a majority. It was one of those seats that swung to Tony Blair uh, in 1997 by a convincing margin. It was one of the seats David Cameron needed to be the largest party. And he surprisingly kept in 2015, as with the rest of the country, is much needed. Labour needs to be winning here to be winning a majority at the next election. And I keep always having a look at how well Stevenage Labour are doing in council elections. And Last year, they did relatively okay. This year, they really need to do well. And it's worth bearing in mind, in a perhaps unplanned nod to Stevenage, a woman, the Stevenage local Labour Party are standing more women than men in the council elections. So well done to them, I suppose. But Stevenage, I suppose, rugby, like Reading, like a lot of these places that that might either in home counties, England, or are on the main lines, this is commuterville. You need to be winning this Mm -hmm. type of the world. This is, I don't want to call it Middle England because Middle England is so all-consuming. It's left behind England, isn't it? We just have all these terms. They're terrible. They don't help us anything, but it is a very much commuter town that is, does represent sort of affluent conservatives, the type of Cameron conservatives that, yeah, indeed, Labour should be winning and winning handily right now. Because whilst... Rishi Sunak has been able to rally Red Wall England with noises on boats. It is in the more affluent areas that he is still struggling and he is perhaps about to get a bit of a 
kicking in the May level election. It's really interesting from that Labour Together report that the two voters out of all the groups that make up Britain's electorate, the critical ones are Stevenage Woman, as you've both very articulately described, and Workington Man, which of course was this figure that the onward centre-right think tank came up with in 2019. And in the Labour Together report, it says this was the voter that Labour catastrophically lost at the last election. How does Labour appeal to both of those voter groups? Because obviously they're quite different in age, in lifestyle, in gender, of course. What seems to tie them together is that working to man is socially conservative. Stevenage woman is not necessarily socially conservative, but she's cautious and wouldn't be someone who would be receptive to radical change, as far as I understand it. So does this explain sort of Keir Starmer's very careful persona? You could say managerial, technocratic. I think Rachel Wearmouth on a recent podcast said that Labour is openly a socially conservative party. Is that why they're going in that direction? Yeah, I think so. I think, as you say, they are quite different voter profiles. But the thing that kind of unites them also is that both of them feel that the country isn't really working for them and they're feeling less well off. So I think that's why we've seen this massive push on kind of economic growth and trying to reform public services and make things work better from Labour. And that sounds like quite an obvious sort of position to put your kind of electoral footing on. But I think it's important that both of these groups feel like they're worse off now than they were X amount of years ago and that things aren't working for them. I think when we look at Starmer's five missions more broadly, we see that he is appealing to both these groups and has been. So taking a hardline stance on crime, immigration and prioritising economic growth, they're all things that will appeal to the Workington man. And then when we look at things like NHS reform and focus on early years education and childcare, that's the sort of thing that you would hope would inspire the Stevenage woman and bring her around. So we've definitely seen Labour, the policies that they're putting out are definitely going to appeal to these groups, even though they're different, they're united by this feeling of things need to work better That's for us. so interesting because we should remember that working to man, though he is socially conservative, he is economically interventionist. It's that sort of statist Boris Johnson style of Toryism that appealed to him. Ben, what are your thoughts on combining those two electorates? Not happy. I don't really like it. I just rem- reminded myself really that this is I'll be honest, in strategic terms, this is silly because this is just two groups sort of Keir Starmer can triangulate between again and just pretend I am aiming for this man and this man only. I don't know who said it. Someone said it on Twitter and it really stayed with me is that when you're trying to win an election, you don't win it by being a sniper targeting like one or two voter groups. You win it by being an artillery officer. You've got to bombard the entire country, really. You can't just be too specific. Stevenage woman and working to man, they may be well, this is the thing. They are, in one respect, their economic interventionism is reflective of the nation as a whole. This country is broadly economic in- interventionist. We like the idea of nationalising things. We want to look competent doing so. We want to see the, uh, the workings for it. And that's why 2019's Labour election manifesto didn't exactly perform well in totality, even though the individual policies were popular. The thing is this, the priorities of both these voters, the priorities of the country as a whole remains, has been, and will continue to be the cost of living, inflation, the prices, economy, and it will stay that way until people feel like their living standards are improving. And to be honest with you, I think Labour thinking, oh, we've got to make noises on gender. We've got Mm -hmm. to make noises on a few other things. It's just a little bit silly. It's overanalyzing. It's looking into the anxieties of what they think 
to be Stevenage woman and think, ah, yes, if we do that in Stevenage, we can do that across the rest of the country and we won't lose anyone and we'll keep everyone rallied. It doesn't make sense. No, you've got to go hard on the number one issue of the day. Otherwise, you're losing. Go hard on the economy. Go hard on inflation. You, this is what the public, where public anxiety is greatest. Don't make any noise elsewhere because you're distracting yourself. You're relaunching yourself with 50 more blooming slogans. It's not what we need. You need you you need um, to stick to the economy, stick to inflation, because that is where voter anxieties are. That is where voters are making their decision at the ballot box. And I think because Labour's not used to winning elections, I don't think they know how to anymore. That's really interesting, isn't it? Because I hope there's some Labour strategists listening to this, Ben, because there's some hard truths from there. But yeah, we've had Worcester Woman in the past and Mondeo Man as well. These are the kind of things that I think parties perhaps that don't have a great deal of electoral confidence, look back on and think, we've got to have the same thing. We've got to have our version of that one landslide in the past. But you're saying these categories aren't particularly useful. And what unites people is a general, it's the economy stupid, basically. Yeah. And and also, it's just worth bearing in mind as well, women, by and large, are more uncertain about the vote than men. And they've fallen out of love with the Conservatives more so than men. But that doesn't mean you have to hone in on a certain type of woman. Just be broad. Be broad in your attacks and try and include the entire country. What the country needs right now is stability and security. That's what voters are most in need of. They don't want answers on gender. They want answers on on, on their living standards, on their wages, on their prices, on their fuel bills. Focus on that. Don't overcomplicate it. So, Zoe, please. why are they doing this? You talk to Labour contacts a lot. What, what, I never understand why parties give away their strategies like this. What's the benefit for them for saying these are the people that we're trying to speak to? That's a, it's a good question. And I think, think for Labour, they've had this real challenge of when they lost the red wall, it felt like a real kind of moment for them of they've kind of failed in what it is they stood Mm. for back when they first started being a party, the group they really stood for. And I think now this really concerted effort for, we're going to win back the red wall. We want to represent the red wall voter. We are constantly keeping them in mind when we're designing policy. Pushing that and saying that all the time, that's going to make people believe that they really are prioritising the red wall voter. I think the Stevenage woman is important. I think she represents this kind of swing voter. And I think they're trying to say, you know, if you're on the fence, we're the safe option. We're thinking of you as well. I agree totally with what Ben said. And I think Labour know or Labour are hoping that people will choose to vote with their pockets and all these kind of fringe issues that the culture wall staff and the people and the issues that the Tories are trying to back them into a corner with. Actually, they're hoping people won't really take them to the ballot Mm. box. I think the difficulty here for Labour is that with this kind of move to the centre or to the right, which both these groups reflect, they will face some challenges from within their own party. At the moment, the party is broadly united by the prospect of winning. They can taste victory. They're pretty sure that they are going to get the keys to number 10. Obviously, there's a way to go, but it feels increasingly like they're going to win the election. But As I said in my piece on this in the morning call on Monday, I think the difficulty will come with either once they're in government or when people start feeling better off and the cost of living crisis stops being the kind of major issue of the day. The left of the party or the more radical part of the party, it might start asking Starmer to take a stance on these issues more and start to demand a bit more in terms of policy. So I think that's where this is going to start becoming more of an issue for the Labour Party. So interesting. We'll keep an eye on it. We'll see if we can come up with any of our own. But for now, thanks to our 
Cheshire chap, Ben. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know where you're from. I haven't come up with <laughs> one for you. you yet. Wakefield. Wakefield so woman. That's perfect. That's alliteration. Oh, Great. One of us. I mean, I, I'm from London, so, you know, I'm spared these patronising <laughs> labels for people in the regions. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much, guys. And thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. If you'd like to take part in a live recording of the New Statesman podcast, join me and my colleagues Freddie Hayward and Ben Walker at the Cambridge Literary Festival on Saturday the 22nd of April at 6pm, where you can put your most pressing questions to us in person. Tickets are available at cambridgeliteraryfestival.com, where you'll also find details of other New Statesman events, including our debate on the future of the monarchy featuring Andrew Marr and Gary Young, and a breakfast briefing with our editor-in-chief, Jason Cowley. New Statesman readers get 20% off tickets with the code NSSPRING23. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues Zoe Grunewald and Ben Walker. We'll be back tomorrow for a special episode on the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. Follow us on your podcast app to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. We're produced by Mae Robson. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.